you know, we as Primitive Baptists, if you come here and you hear Brother Tim or somebody preach and you hear people quoting scriptures and things like that, it's always going to be out of the King James Version of the Bible. And um, if you, you know, um, if you go out on the streets and somebody, you know, talks about Primitive Baptists, one of the things that they'll say, well, they're, they're KJV people. Uh, and, you know, I, I would encourage everybody here not to blindly follow any of the doctrines or practices that we have here in the Primitive Baptist Church. I don't know about you in particular, but I can tell you for me, if I went up to somebody on the street and I asked them why they worshiped a particular way, why they used a particular uh, translation of the Bible or whatever the question may be, and their answer to me was more along the lines of, well, you know, that's just kind of what we do. And they didn't really have anything to back that up with. Well, in my own sinful mind, I began to think, well, there's somebody that's just a foolish sheep that's just following the crowd. Maybe they, maybe they use a particular Bible or they uh, have a particular way they worship because they like the preacher there or because the church is convenient to their house. But I would not think, all right, here's, I would not think to myself, here's somebody that I need to give a lot of credibility to when I sit down to talk about spiritual things. Okay, you're going to have a tough time talking to me about doctrine if you can't give me some sort of answer to the question of why do you worship the way you worship or why do you use a particular translation of the Bible. So I think the general public probably approaches it the same way I do, that if you want somebody to give you credibility, you need to be, as the Bible says, be ready to, to give an answer to he that asketh you. So this is one of those things that I think we need to look at. And if we're going to be a, a church that uh, believes that the King James Bible is the most sufficient, we need to know why that is. Uh, and the more I studied this, the more uh, uh, comfortable I got with it because there was a time when I first came, you know, Tim says they use the King James Version. And I said, okay. And I went out and bought one and I've been reading it and I was fine with it. Uh, but I wanted to know exactly why we use that. Some of these thoughts that I've got are coming from this book, and I'm not necessarily promoting this book. It's called A More Sure Word, Which Bible Can You Trust? And this guy definitely has one foot in the Armenian world, but the factual things that he says are very interesting to me. So, And the point of this message, too, is not to take the approach of, all right, here's a particular verse in the Bible, say 1 Corinthians 1.18, Let's compare the King James Version to the New King James Version to the NIV to the New American Standard to the English Standard. That's not the purpose. It's not to compare, compare verse to verse to verse to verse to verse. Although I think that is beneficial, and we've actually done that here uh, four or five years ago. Brother Tim went, spent several Wednesday nights doing that where we all brought different translations and we compared you know, how each one was different. I do think that is beneficial and probably even more beneficial on the heels of, of what I've got to say tonight. But that's not my main purpose to do that. My main purpose tonight is to go back to the very beginning. And, and like the old saying goes, uh, you know, I have to consider your source. So my, my purpose tonight is to go back to the beginning, consider the source of where these translations came from, and maybe at a later date actually compare each translation. But I don't even know that that would be necessary once we get through this tonight. And I'll, I, don't, I mean, I've got some things to say, but it's not a ton of things, but I hope it's beneficial. I, can, I can't cover everything that this guy said in the book. Tons of quotes, tons of scriptures to compare, but I kind of pulled out the highlights for myself. And I will say this, too, before I get too involved in it. At the end of the day, it is going to require you to look at this with the eye of faith. Okay, no matter what I say, it's going to require faith at the end of the day. Even if I brought in a, a whole pile of manuscripts 
And I said, these are the very original manuscripts that were God-inspired, that were written by the holy prophets. These are the very original ones. You've got to have some faith that I'm telling you the truth. Okay, so it is going to require faith no matter what stance you want to take, uh, but you're going to have to have that uh, in order to settle your mind that this is the, uh, God's preserved word in English. So uh, it will require that. Now, you think about some people take this approach. They'll say, well, it really doesn't matter. Okay, it doesn't matter. We all love Jesus. All right, we're all children of God. It really doesn't matter if, if this guy's using this version and this guy's using this translation and on and on and on and on. What does it really matter? Well, I want to look at a few scriptures uh, that say that it, I think it does matter. Uh, because one, Paul writes in Romans 12, he says that we're, of, we're to be of the same mind. He also writes in 1 Corinthians that we're to speak the same thing. Now, it's going to be very difficult for us to speak the same thing and to have the same mind if we're using Bibles, and again, I'm using that term loosely, but if we're using Bibles that one of them over here has something in the present tense, the same verse in this other version has got it in the past tense, and another version over here has got it in the future tense. All right, It's going to be hard for us to all get on the same page if our Bibles differ in, in, in something as simple as verb tenses, okay? For, I'll give you an example. One version of the Bible in 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that the gospel is the power of God to those that are saved. Okay, that's the King James Version. Another version will tell you, translation will tell you that the gospel is the power of God to those that are being saved. All right, well, you got one version says these are people that are saved. Another version says that they are being saved as like it's an ongoing continual process. So it's all for just, that's one simple example of why it would be difficult to get on the same page if we're not speaking the same language. In Jude, the, first, uh, the only chapter of Jude in the third verse, he says that he should uh, exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Now that word contend there means to struggle for. So I don't think it's a very small thing to want to take a stand for what is the true, genuine, preserved Word of God. He says that we're to earnestly contend for the faith. He said this is something that the Lord uh, once delivered to us. And you say, well, I don't understand why it's that big a deal. The big deal is, and the reason we make that much of a fuss about it, is because from the very beginning of the Bible, if you look in Genesis, don't flip over there, I'm going to just give you some of these verses. In Genesis, the third chapter, from the very, very beginning, you see Satan trying to distort and question the Word of God. That's a tactic that he used right out of the gate. In Genesis 3, it says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And that's a question there. You see, Satan comes to him and says, Listen, did God really say that you're not supposed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And so from the very beginning, Satan's tactic is to question or to distort the Word of God. And we read where Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. He says that for we are not as many which corrupt the Word of God. Now here's my point up to this point. The reason it's important is because Satan will win a great victory of division if he can get God's people divided on what is actually the Word of God. Okay, because they're not all equal. Okay, they will lead you down different paths. And the Bible says we are not as many that corrupt the Word of God. How do you corrupt the Word of God? By doing what Satan tried to do in the beginning, by changing it and distorting it just a little bit. You know, not doing massive, massive changes, even though it's kind of getting that way today. 
doing, not doing massive changes, but he is trying to divide God's people by uh, clouding and polluting what they think is the Word of God. Now, in order to start here, let's go back to the very, very, very beginning. Okay? Think about before God ever inspired one holy prophet to pen one piece of Scripture. Right, in the very beginning, I want you to think about what God gave us here. We know in 2 Timothy 3.16 that he tells us that uh, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Okay, so we know that God inspired these Scriptures. We also know if you look at um, 2 Peter in the first verse, and I want to read to you about verse 16. It says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. He is referring here to the, to the transfiguration you can read about in Matthew the 17th chapter uh, where Peter was there and he saw the glorified Lord. All right, he was an eyewitness to, God, to Jesus Christ in all of His glory. He says, we didn't follow cunningly devised fables. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And he goes on, he says, For he received from God the Father honor and glory, when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, glory This is my beloved Son, and him in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Now that's got to have some credibility there. Here's Peter saying, Listen, I was an eyewitness. I saw the glorified Lord. I heard a voice from heaven speak to him. I, and I'm telling you, I'm an eyewitness to this event right here. But he goes on and he says in verse 19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. You know what he's saying there? He says, this prophecy that I'm giving you, which he's referring to the Scriptures, is even more sure than my own eyewitness account. So these Scriptures are definitely God-inspired. They're important. And Peter even says, they're more sure than the very eyewitness account that I had on the, Mount, the Transfiguration. He says, we have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time, not by the will of man, but by holy men of God, spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So, from the very beginning we know this, it was God's mind to give man Scriptures that were inspired. And they were to be such a sure word of prophecy that they even trumped Peter's eyewitness account on this earth of the glorified Lord. Okay? So they're important to us. Now, he also says this when I read the verse of Jude a minute ago. He says that we should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Now think about this. He says, I once delivered this. I gave it to you once. You notice the Lord does not give a generation Scriptures that are inspired by God and then a couple generations later He inspires men to write it again and a couple generations He inspires men to write it again to keep up with the lingo and to keep up with the way men talk and to keep up with the current definitions. Uh, for example, the word gay now does not mean what gay meant 50, 60, 80 years ago. So He doesn't give us a whole new inspired Scripture to accommodate for that. The reason He delivered it to us once is because He is able to preserve it. Okay, down through time. He said, I'm giving it to you once. And he doesn't have to keep giving it to us over and over. In Matthew 24, in the 35th verse, it says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And one evidence of that is this. 
I want you to think about people that wrote uh, prophets like Isaiah. Okay, he would write something and then hundreds, you know, even thousand years later in the New Testament, people would quote what Isaiah wrote way back then, eight, eight, you know, in eight, the eighth century or something like that, you know. He would write something and then 800 years later, one of these apostles would quote him. Now what you see is an evidence there that God is preserving His Word down through time. So... Let's think about this now, now that I've laid a little bit of groundwork there. Let's go back to the very original. Okay, I want you to think about Paul sitting in a prison and the Lord moves on him, the Spirit of God moves on him and he picks up a piece of paper and a pen and he begins to write as God inspires him. And he writes a letter, let's just say to the church at Ephesus, which what he was writing is what we know as the book of Ephesians. And he penned it. He wrote it down, okay? And then he folds it up and he gives it to a messenger and he sends it to the church at Ephesus. Church at Ephesus receives it. They read the letter, which was the, I believe it's the six chapters of Ephesians, okay? And then what happened, you think that's, you know, what he wrote to the church, the churches at Galatia, churches at Rome. You think about what Jeremiah wrote and Isaiah wrote and all these people wrote. There was a moment when they wrote these things down and that was the original copy. Now, they could not go to the Xerox machine and run them off. They couldn't enter it into a Word document and save it on a hard drive or save it on a CD or put it on some server somewhere. The way that those people at Ephesus, when they had that letter, the way that somebody else got that letter is they took it and they hand copied it. Now, you think about the number of copies that would have been out there. All right, You've got this, just like I said, the, say the, the letter that was written to the church at Ephesus. All right? This guy wants a copy of it, and they start copying it. Copies, 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 copies. Now, the Jewish people, which is really, really interesting, they took the process of copying very seriously. Uh, that was the job of what they called the scribes. Now, I read just a little. I won't go through all the details of it, but a few of the things, uh, the way the Jewish people copied this thing uh, was the parchment or that, that they had had to be made from a clean animal, uh, they could only write in, in black ink. Anytime that they wrote the word God, they had to, before they wrote it, they had to wipe their pen before they wrote it. If they were going to write the word Jehovah, they had to wash their whole body before they could copy the word Jehovah. And they could never copy these things by memory. Okay, they would make, a, you had to lay the manuscript out here, have your copy in here, and you would have to say, pronounce each word, and then write it. Say, a, uh, pronounce a word and write it. Pronounce a word and write it. Uh, and they had a lot of strict rules about just how they, um, you know, how they had, how many lines they had to have and all that type of stuff. So copying was a serious business. So you can imagine throughout time, there's hundreds and thousands and thousands and thousands of these copies floating around somewhere. You know, as far as we know, the, the actual original copy, uh, they've been destroyed and we don't even know where they are. Some have been burned and things like that. But uh, what we have today is thousands and thousands and thousands of copies. Now, a couple definitions here I want you to get. One is the definition of manuscript. A manuscript is a handwritten ancient copy of scriptures. Okay, now that manuscript may be a few verses, that manuscript may be a chapter, or it may be an entire book. So all these copies or these manuscripts are floating around out there. Okay, and then you've got what you call a text. A text is a compilation of manuscript evidence that is used to form a Bible. So out of all these manuscripts that are floating around, you start gathering those uh, manuscripts that are copies of the original you take them all and you put them in what they call a text and you, you use that text 
to create a Bible. So you may go over here and you find a manuscript. Well, I found, uh, I found a manuscript of the book of John. Okay? And then I've, over here I found half of the Psalms. And over here I've got the other half of the Psalms. And then we've got the book of Luke over here and part of the book of Acts. And you start to collect all these manuscripts and you make a text. And that text is a form of the Bible. Okay? Now there are two main texts that most all Bibles today are translated from. And I want to go over those two main texts today. The first one I want to go over, and I'm just going to pretend when I point over here, that's talking about the received text, okay? So over here you've got the received text, and there are about ten different names for this thing, okay? But the received text is what I want to use. And the received text was a group of manuscripts that authentic churches and Christians have accepted since the inception of the local church. Sometimes it's referred to as the Textus Receptus. You may have heard that word. That's not entirely accurate. The Textus Receptus is a part of the received text, but the received text is a little bit broader than that, and it's more of the whole. So the received text is one of the texts that is a compilation of manuscripts that a Bible can be translated from. Now, here's some facts about it. There are 5,255 manuscripts that were available to compile this text, okay? Out of those 5,255 manuscripts, we used 5,210 of those to actually make the text. That means out of 5,255, 45 of them, they looked at and said, something's polluted about this, something's corrupted about this, let's just throw it off to the side and not use it. So they used 5,210 out of 5,255, and if you divide that out, that's 99% of the manuscripts that were available, they used. And the reason they used them is because they harmonized and were identical. Okay, So I go over here, and I find a copy, uh, a manuscript of the book of Mark. And I find another manuscript of the book of Mark. And I look at them, and they're identical. Okay, And I look at over here. Hey, here's another, here's another manuscript of Mark. It's identical to these. These are identical copies. So 99% of the 5,255 manuscripts uh, were used by the received text, and they all harmonized. They all said the same things. Now, in order to, uh, to further support it, there are over a million quotes from people like, um, I can't remember the guy's name, but it was a guy that uh, was under the Apostle John, kind of like the Apostle John would have been his father in the ministry. He might quote scripture that harmonizes with the received text. So there are over a million quotes that not only do 5,210 manuscripts harmonize with each other, there are more than a million quotes that are exact quotes of these manuscripts. There are also 35,000 other manuscripts that have somehow been copied and translated into a different language that also harmonize with these. So, to me, these are very sound. Okay, 5,210 manuscripts that all say the same thing. They support over a million quotes by early church leaders, and there's 35,000 other manuscripts that also support them. To me, that's a lot of evidence, okay? So, the point here to that is that the King James Bible is solely translated from the received text. Okay, that means when, when King James got ready and he said we need to get the, the Bible into English form, that he went to the received text where 5,210 random copied manuscripts were brought together and they all harmonized. The ones that didn't, they threw them away and said we're not going to use those. So the King James Bible is solely uh, translated from the received text. Now, that's over here. 
Over here, you've got what you call the critical text. There's a lot of other names for that too, but we're going to settle for the critical text now. Now, the critical text was a new Greek text that was put together in the late 1800s. Okay? Now, 5,210 manuscripts make up the received text. There were, there were predominantly two manuscripts that make up the critical text. Okay? So, there were actually 45, like that's any better, but there are actually 45 that make up the critical text, but there are predominantly two, probably 95% of it came from two, two dominant manuscripts. One of those is called the Sinaiticus, okay? Sinaiticus, S-I-N-A-I, Sinai, okay? And it was found, now listen to where this thing was found. It was found in a Greek Orthodox monastery. You don't think those guys didn't know a thing or two? Okay, a Greek Orthodox monastery at Mount Sinai. They probably knew a thing or two about Greek and what was worthless and what was not worthless. Okay? Now, this was, this was found in 1839. Okay? They were found by this guy who was trying to go find a bunch of manuscripts. They were found in a pile of papers that were set off to the side and used to start fires. All right? If the Greek Orthodox monastery people looked at these things and said, these things aren't worth anything other than starting a fire with, we probably ought to put a little value to that. All right, so Sinaiticus is one of them. The other one is called the Vaticanus, okay? It was found in the Vatican Library. And we're not sure about the date that it was found, but both of these manuscripts were nearly complete with Old and New Testament. All right, so you got one that was found that was ready to be burnt, uh, used to start fires, and you got another one that was in the Vatican Library. There are two main manuscripts. Now, two guys come along, and they take these two manuscripts, and the whole thing about these two manuscripts is that it is estimated that they are the oldest manuscripts, okay? And so for some reason, people just lost their minds when they thought, oh, the oldest manuscripts. They're still copies, they just guess them to be older copies than some of the other ones. So maybe the received text has got one that was from 500 A.D. And these guys got one that's from you know, an estimated 300 A.D. And they say, well, it must be more accurate. Okay? But, again, it's estimated that they were older. But they don't really know and they can't really prove it. Kind of like carbon dating. You know, it's been proven that you can't really rely on that. So these two guys come along named Westcott and Hort. That's their last names. They take these two texts and they compile them in 1881. Okay, that's like our great-grandfathers. That's when they were alive. In 1881, and they make a new Greek text, primarily from those two texts. Okay, so you've got the received text. Follow me now. 5,210 manuscripts, okay, that all say the same thing. You've got the critical text that has two. Okay, and the critical text is supposedly older. All right, these all harmonize. What about, the, what about the critical text? Do they harmonize? Okay, let's look at the re reliability of them. Combined out of 620 manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark. Stay with me now. 620 available manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark. All of them have 20 verses, I believe it's 20 verses, in the 16th chapter of Mark. Mark 16, you got 20 verses. There are two manuscripts out of the 620 manuscripts of the Gospel at Mark that don't have the verses 9 through 20 in Mark chapter 16. Guess which ones they were? 
They were these two over here. Okay, so the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus were the only two manuscripts out of all the manuscripts of Gospel of Mark that did not have Mark 16, verse 9 through 20. But what's interesting, and I told you how funny the scribes were about copying these things, you had to have the columns just right, okay? You couldn't end way up here. You had to word it and space your wording and use the right words per line to where you had even columns all the way down. Well, these two uh, manuscripts that did not have Mark chapter 16, 9 through 20 had enough lines exactly for verses 9 through 20. Now, that's interesting that they left that much space for those. You wonder, like, and you know, did the guy, did he just get up, go get something to drink and he forgot to do it? Or, you know, what was going on there? But it's interesting that out of 620, only two of them don't have verses uh, 9 through 20. And we'll get to that in just a minute. A little bit more of that in just a minute. So two of the versions that we know of, the NIV and the New American Standard Version of the Bible, translation of the Bible, they either completely omit Mark 16, 9 through 20, or they'll have it in brackets, and in the footnote they will say the earliest and best manuscripts omit these verses. Okay? You can already probably start to get the idea of kind of where I'm going with some of this. Do you see how easily... That could create confusion and doubt in somebody. To go like, you know what, I've never read much about the Bible. I don't know anything about church, but man, I just, the Lord has done work in me. I'm going to go down here and buy a Bible at Lifeway and open it up. I just happened to open up to Mark 16, 9 through 20. Why is it in brackets? Oh, the earliest and best manuscripts don't have this. Well, why does this have it? Can I rely on that? Should I treat this as the inspired Word of God? I'd probably just throw my hands up and say, this is a bunch of nothing. I'll just move on with my day. So it creates confusion. Now, these two manuscripts create the critical text. Again, I'm beating a dead horse, I know, but it's worth beating. 5,210. They all say the same thing. Two, there are 5,600 differences between these two. You understand? This one and this one differ in 5,600 places. 3,000 of those places are in the Gospels alone. Now, one guy went to, I don't remember the guy's name, it was a big long name, but he went to look at these manuscripts. And he said, when I looked at these manuscripts, he said what I noticed, you know, these are copies now. He said on one page, there were 10 different handwritings. He said there were words crossed out. There were, there were marks and revisions made all over this one page by 10 different handwritings. Now, you have to start wondering deep down, is that preserved by God? If 10 different people have handled it and there's revisions and things marked out and it differs from this other manuscript 5,600 times, why in the world would we want to compile that and make a text to translate a Bible off of? I can tell you why I would want to do that is if I were the devil. Okay, I don't mean to be so brass, but hey, if I want to do that, if I was the devil, I'd say, you know what? I can really confuse folks here and in their simple, silly little minds... I will just make them not be able to see past the fact that these are supposedly older manuscripts. Okay? Now, think about this. Brother Tim's in court tonight. If these witnesses in, in the courtroom tonight where Brother Tim is, if 5,210 witnesses come up and they all say the same thing, how are you going to feel about that? You're going to say, that's pretty reliable. If two witnesses come up and they differ 5,600 times, how are you going to feel about that? You're probably going to say, I'm sorry, y'all are just not credible. Now, I'm going to give you a few examples of these, and I'm not going to go through all these. Let's just jot some of these down. This was a very interesting one to me. 
In Luke, the 23rd chapter and the 45th verse, and I'm going to try to explain this best I can. It's been a long time since I've had 8th grade science, so some of you 8th graders might need to help me out here. In Luke 23, 45, it says this, And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. Okay, we know what's going on here. Christ is hanging on the cross. When did Christ hang on the cross? At Passover. What type of moon do we have when it's Passover? It's a full moon. Okay? Those are important things. Now, in the received text, the Greek word there literally means was darkened. In the critical text, the Greek word that's there means was eclipsed. Okay? I had to go look this up because I can't remember this. Is it possible to have an eclipse, which I guess it would be a solar eclipse, where the moon passes between the earth and the sun while you have a full moon. Are you with me there? When we see the moon, what is that? That's the sun shining on the moon, right? Do I have that right? So the sun is shining on the moon and you can see it. Let's say that light is the sun. If the moon moves between the earth and the sun, the sun is shining on the moon, but you can't see it. Okay? So it's impossible for it to be a full moon with a solar eclipse. Here we know the Passover was a full moon because it always was. And the critical text tells us that the sun was eclipsed during Passover, which is scientifically impossible. Okay? Now you may not think that's really important, but it kind of gave me the willies a little bit to think, I see more and more errors in this and how that could lead to more and more confusion. Now, maybe there's somebody that sits down and reads this that's in big time uh, they're really up on their 8th grade science and they know about solar eclipses and they know about the Passovers and they read that and they look at the Greek word from the critical text and they think, well, that's scientifically impossible. How can I give credit to anything else in this Bible? Okay, now let's look at another one. This one's even more important to me. John the 7th chapter. I should have brought an NIV tonight and I don't have it. John the 7th chapter here, verse 8. Jesus says this, Go ye up unto this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. When he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Alright? Easy. Easy cheesy. Jesus says, y'all go on, I'm not going yet. They go on, he stays a little bit, and then he goes. Okay? Was there anything wrong with what Jesus said? Absolutely not. He said, I'm not going yet. Y'all go on. I'll be there in a little bit. And he goes up later. The critical text, when it's translated, it didn't say like the NIV. The NIV is taken off the critical text. Reads this way. Jesus says, you go, to the, you go to the festival. I am not going to the festival. Two verses later, what do you find? Jesus goes to the festival. All right. Take the guy that walks into Lifeway and just pulls out a Bible and just says, you know what, i got to figure this Jesus thing out, this Bible thing out, the Lord's dealing with me. And he just happens to open up to John, the 7th chapter, verse 8, and it's an NIV version, and it says, Jesus said, I'm not going to the festival. Two verses later, Jesus goes to the festival. Would you not in your mind say, well, he's a big fat liar. He just said he's not going to the festival, but then all of a sudden he goes to the festival. Do you see how important each word is? In the King James it says, I go not up yet unto this feast. Now, to me that's important. The critical text, how reliable is it? It differs between the two manuscripts that came from 5,600 times. 
It says that there was a solar eclipse in a time that it was impossible to have a solar eclipse. It leaves out the word yet when it seems to make Jesus out to be a liar. Now, the received text and the critical text disagree among themselves about 10% of the time. And you say that doesn't seem like a lot, but the very first sermon that I ever heard Brother Tim preach when we came to Bethlehem, he made this point that if you're traveling a long distance in an airplane and you start and you start just one degree off, it's not going to be that big a deal a little bit down the road. But by the time you get way out here, that one degree, you're going to be way off from the true path. These disagree 10% of the time. And usually the 10% that they disagree in are in substantial areas. They're not just tiny little areas. So, let me go on to this next part really quick here. Received text, critical text. 5,210, all agree. Two, they disagree 5,600 times. Now, what's it time for? It's time to decide we need some Bibles in English. What are we going to pick from? Okay, it goes back to consider your source. Where are we going to translate these from? King James said, take the received text and we're going to translate from that. Now, there are two main translation methods. Okay, One of the methods is called dynamic equivalency. And I'm going to explain this. A dynamic equivalency translation method consists of this. It's taking a thought, processing it, and turning it into a thought. Okay, so it's a thought for thought process. Okay, so I could say like, you know, blah, 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 blah. You process that. You go out there and say, well, he just said, you know, I only put it in my own words. So I'm going to get you the same point that he said. I'm, you're going to have the same point, but I'm just going to change the way he said it so you can understand it better. That's dynamic equivalency. Okay, my problem with that is the Bible says that his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. So. It is a dangerous and prideful thing to say, I'm pretty sure I know what God meant. Let me make it a little easier for you to understand. Okay? Now, dynamic equivalency is a thought-for-thought translation. Now, if I were going to study, and I was going to, or I was going to say to myself, if, if this person is going to translate for me a thought-for-thought, one thing that I'm going to want to know is what does this person that is translating this thought, what do they believe? Okay, because you run this through a corrupt mind, it naturally is going to have a corrupt spin on it. So think about this, Westcott and Hort. They were the two guys that took the two manuscripts and made the critical text to translate off of. These are just a few of the things that they believed. They believed in baptismal regeneration. You've got to be baptized to be born again. They believed that the first three chapters of Genesis were not literal. They were confused on doctrine of salvation and atonement. They objected to eternal punishment. They leaned heavily toward evolution and they believed that the Scriptures were not infallible or absolute. Let me give you a few examples of dynamic equivalency. Genesis, the second chapter here. This is, again, thought for thought. This is not word for word. This is thought for thought. Genesis 2 and verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. From the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Pretty clear. Now, it gets Eve's turn to regurgitate what God said about this tree. What you see Eve say in chapter 3, verse 2, And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. What's the problem there? That's dynamic equivalency. 
Eve, the Lord said, of all the trees of the garden thou may freely eat, but you don't eat of this one. Eve goes in there and says, he said we could eat. He said, uh, but we can't eat of this one and we can't touch it. Okay, Eve tried to translate God's words and thoughts into a new thought. And what she do? She left out the word freely and she added uh, the word touch. Okay, God never said you couldn't touch it. But Eve, dynamic equivalency translation, she added something to it, trying to project out of her own mind what the thoughts of God's were, of God was. Now let me give you one more. 1 Peter 1.19. And again, you may say I'm splitting hairs on this. But we're confused enough as it is. Okay? The last thing I need is to go to this Bible and feel like I find contradictions. Okay? 1 Peter 1.19 says this, But with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now, I don't remember which version it is, but it comes off the critical text here. It changes the words precious blood. It changes those to costly sacrifice. Well, what's the big deal? Okay, The big deal is, is if you go to John the 12th chapter, you find Mary taking the ointment and anointing Jesus' feet. And it says that that was a costly sacrifice. That costly sacrifice is not to be confused or compared to the sacrifice of Christ's blood. Okay? So, how do you eliminate that? You don't call God's precious blood a costly sacrifice. You don't take that thought that God said and put it in your own words because you, what you have done is potentially in the minds of a reader is you've diluted the precious blood of Christ down to a simple jar of ointment. They were both costly sacrifices, but let's don't put them on the same level. One was the precious blood. Okay, It was not by the costly sacrifice of Christ. It was by the precious blood of Christ. Those things are important. Now, that's dynamic equivalency. The New King James Version does that over 2,000 times. The New American Standard Version does it 4,000 times. The NIV Version does it 6,653 times. And you may say this, why does it matter? Somebody that's sound in their doctrine, they can read John chapter 7, verse 8, and they can say to themselves, I know that He meant that He's not going up yet to the festival. I got that. They don't have to put that three-letter word in there for me. You may say that somebody sound could do that. But let me ask you this, can we say it any better than God said it? And it leads to confusion. That's what Satan tried to do in the very beginning was to go to Eve and say, has God, has God said, did He really, really say it this way? Just the tiniest little perversion. And our corrupt minds will take it and run wild with it. Can we say it better than we say it? Say it. Proverbs 30, verse 5 and 6. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. And add thou not unto His words, lest He reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. Now listen, the Bible is pretty clear. If you add to these words, or you take away from these words, and you start quoting those things, the Bible's pretty plain that, that you'll be made out to be a liar. Okay? So it's an important thing. Now the dynamic equivalency. The formal equivalency is just a word for word. Okay? They take a word, they look at it, and they translate it. Word, word. Word, word, all the way down. When King James decided and was or when he was petitioned to take a, a Bible from the Greek and turn it into the English language, he took the received text, 5,210, 99% of 5,255, they all agree. Okay? 90, I'm not saying 99% of, of the ones they used agree. 100% of those agree. There was just 1% that didn't agree and they threw those out. King James says, take this received text. He took 57 of the best Hebrew and Greek scholars that did not have an agenda other than to translate word for word. 
He divided them into six groups. Each group studied a, a passage of Scripture. So let's say that uh, they had 57 people. They divided into six. Just for easy numbers, let's say that's nine people. Nine people get in a group. They say, okay, nine people, here's you a set, here's you a set, here's you a set. Y'all go translate them. They went out and they translated word for word, word for word. Then the nine came back. The nine came back and they presented what they translated. They went back and forth and they talked about it a little bit until all accepted it. Then these went back to the main group and they did it again. And by the time it was done, each scripture was scrutinized 14 different times. Okay, you can compare that to the NIV, which each scripture was read no more than three times. And it was read off the critical text. Okay, so those are a few things to think about. Now, let me give you the, just a, a quick summary rundown and show you just some interesting things here. The King James Version is from the received text. It's solely from the received text. It's the only version that is solely from the received text. It was translated with formal equivalency, meaning it was a word-for-word-for-word word word translation. The translators were people that viewed God's Word as supernatural. They believed that God preserved His Word down through time. The King James Version also, these are two interesting facts, is a non-marketing, copyright-driven status. Okay, So there are a few King James Bibles that are copyrighted. But the vast majority of them, you could take this and run it off on the copy machine and give it to somebody and you're fine. Okay? Now, hold your horses. It's also easier to read. Okay? When I started to read the King James Bible when I came here, I did not feel like it was easier to read. But it's only because that's not how I talked. Okay? But once I realized and I got used to reading it, I realized it is easier to read. Let me show you. Uh, they say that the King James Bible is on a fifth grade reading level. Okay, fifth grade reading level. Now listen to this. I'm going to give you a word that was in the King James and I'm going to tell you what the New King James made it. Okay, King James has evil. New King James has adversity, calamity, disaster, catastrophe, distress. Which one's easier? Evil. They changed house to habitation, smell to savor, give to gratify, man to mortal, old to elderly, bones to limb, judge to vindicate, children to descendants, Little rivers to rivulets. Who's ever heard of that? <laughs> Box to flask, people to multitudes, ended to concluded, deep to abyss, taken to seized, divider to arbitrator, riotous to prodigal, old men to elders, hell to Hades, judgment hall to praetorium, thoughts to anxieties, throne to residence, stranger to captivity, pictures to sloops. This is my favorite. Fat to verdant. Okay? If you walk up and say, man, you're verdant. They don't even know what you're talking about. King James, fat. New King James was, was verdant or verdant. I don't even know how you pronounce it. It doesn't really matter because nobody really knows what it is anyway. Okay? Fifth grade reading level for the King James. Much fewer syllables to read. But as they translate them, they actually translate them out into what they consider a ninth grade reading level. Now, the new Bible versions are this. Almost all, I'll say other than King James, all Bible versions today, the new ones, the NIV, the New American Standard, all those, they're from the critical text. That ought to bother you right there. Okay? They're translated from the critical text. Why? Because it's older. Okay? Supposedly. We don't even know that that's true. It was translated with a dynamic equivalency translation, which means they took a thought and they made a thought. Took his thought, made a thought. Took a thought, what is he really trying to say? And then wrote it down. 
The translators viewed the Bible as just another book. It was based on restoring God's Word, trying to continually get it back to where God wanted it, rather than the idea that He just preserved it all down through time. It's from a text that was put together in the 1800s. It has more syllables, and it's a market-driven copyright status. That means if you use more than 200 words out of these other versions, you're subject to the publishers of that version. And I remember reading that one time in the front of my NIV Bible where it was talking about how I can't copy and do all these. I can't copy more than 200 words out of the NIV. And I thought, what? This is a... I thought, this was God's Word. How are you going to copyright God's Word? But the thing is, it's a marketing thing. All right, I'm going to take this version and then next year I'm going to just jazz it up a little bit and I'm going to really market it and then we're going to make more money off of it, more money off of it. Here's the nutshell of the whole thing. Based on what I've told you tonight, which Bible do you think is the most sufficient? Okay, it is going to require us to have an eye of faith anyway. But the facts are this. Received text, very harmonious, very accurate. It is a, it is, God has promised us that He will preserve His Word. He has promised us that. We know that God's Word has been preserved because He told us He would preserve it. How has it been preserved? Does it sound like these are preserved? Or does it sound like these are preserved? Based on what I've told you, which one do you think is more sufficient? Now, I believe that God has preserved His Word. I believe that He wanted His people to have it. And I believe down through time, He providentially stayed the hands of men that were copying these things to keep it exact. There were errors made. But when a received text looked at all these and said, hey, these don't jive with these 5,210 other ones, they threw them out and they didn't use them. So for me, I'm convinced that the King James Bible is God's preserved word in English. That's what I'm getting to. So when somebody comes up to you and asks, why do y'all use the King James Version? I expect you to tell them everything I just told you. Okay. <laughs> you ought to be able to say, well, I believe it came from manuscripts that the Lord providentially preserved. Whereas all these other Bible translations come from a text that's while, while it is older, the evidence seems that it was corrupt and probably flawed in many ways and errors. And if you translate an error, you get an error. So, Jesus said that I'm not going up yet. That's a three-letter word. That's a small difference, but it makes Him out not to be a liar. That's why it's important to me. 